VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? If you think about any major industry in the ocean, it's going to be affected by uncertainties associated with weather. And right now, the uncertainties with weather over the ocean are at a different order of magnitude than they are over land. And that's simply because over land, mm. we have weather stations on rooftops. In the ocean, we have none of that. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. I am back from vacation, back from Jamaica. Oh my goodness. I am sad. It was fabulous. What an amazing place. But now here I am back at my home office, which is, of course, my kitchen table. I'm recording this for all you lovely people. I hope you, everybody's doing well and able to, like, you know, get some kind of summer escape because it was restorative to the mind, body, and soul. But anyway, that's not what you're here to hear about. You're here to hear about my conversation with Tim Jansen, who is the founder of a company called So Far Ocean. Now, so far is a super cool business because what they're doing is basically they're trying to fill the ocean with a bunch of sensor buoys so that we can start to understand what exactly is happening out there in the great big blue, if that's what we're going to call it. As soon as you kind of start here, kind of the, the basic concept, it becomes apparent quite quickly why this is potentially extremely useful from, you know, plotting the best shipping routes to climate change study to gathering weather intelligence that might be of an interest to say you know i don't know a hedge fund manager who's trying to make a bet on orange juice futures for example no points or actually i'll give you points if you know what the, the reference is for that but anyway there's just a ton of ways you could use this data which is really about you know what is happening in the oceans on any given time big storms weather systems all that kind of stuff and the interesting thing for me is just this whole idea that this didn't already exist and there's a lot of really interesting companies that you come across you're like oh well that just seems obvious and then you're like why had no one else done this before but tim who's a former academic he saw the firsthand the the kind of the lack of data as a problem and he set out to solve it and that's you know he's on his way so anyway, I think you're going to like this one. It's a very small company trying to do a very big thing. And I just think it's a fascinating idea, a fascinating concept in the early days. But it could be quite a big deal. 
um, especially as, as they put more of these in the water and start really generating just, you know, tons of information. So anyhow, that is it. I will now step aside and hand you over to hear this conversation I've had with Tim Jansen, the founder of So Far Ocean out here in San Francisco. Enjoy. I know what our friends at True Ventures told me, uh, and it all just sounded like really interesting and obviously a different type of startup than the ones I that I often cover out here. So would love to just, yes, start with the obvious. What are you guys doing and why? Yeah, let me, let me give you a little bit of uh, context, like why we exist. Um, I'm a physical oceanographer, which means that you know, it's an unusual profession. And I think it explains a lot of the reason why we are and what we do. Basically, what, what physical oceanographers do is study basically the interaction between the ocean and the other parts of our planet, like the coast, the atmosphere, um, and trying to figure out how the oceans work and how they play a part in our climate. And so as most people that work in the ocean environment know that you know there's a tremendous ocean data gap mm. um, in the sense that we know quite a bit about land uh, because we we walk the land and we have you know we're really good at digitization. We've got really good at doing that in space as well. Unfortunately, we're not very good at doing that in the ocean. And uh, as a result, there is really almost no data uh, in the ocean. If you before we started as a company, if you took a, a map and looked at the globe and looked at you know permanent measuring stations in the ocean, there was absolutely nothing in the open ocean. So. What traditionally was happening is that, you know, instrumentation was very expensive. Folks would then want to tie it down to the seafloor because you don't want to lose it. And that means you can only do that into like, say, you know, 200 meters of water depth, which means you're close to the shoreline. Everything else, open ocean, it gets more complicated. So there we have to rely on remote sensing from satellites, which is, you know, inaccurate and typically uh, because it's very difficult to make accurate measurements right at the surface. Mm. Um, and it has a very, I'd say, like peculiar time-space sampling. Uh, it only flies over like maybe twice a day or something, so you can get you know odd biases in the data. And so to improve our ability to make models better, you know both on the short term like weather, but also on longer terms climate, getting long dwell data like really accurate data that we collect for longer periods of time is is absolutely essential. And that's that's what we're mostly doing. Like our mission as a company is to connect the world's oceans uh, and provide insights to science, society, and industry for a more sustainable planet. Um, and the first step towards building that is to build a massive planetary scale network that you know, in some ways you could think of as a nervous system for the ocean, like providing unprecedented real-time information about every part of the ocean. Uh, and to date on the surface mostly, but the level of data that we can provide today right now is unprecedented. So what does that network actually look like? I mean, physically, what does that mean? Physically, it means a lot of dots on the on the map. Um, <laughs> if, if you you know you highlight every sensor right now, we are about 500 sensors live across all uh, ocean basins, and we will have a thousand in the next six months. So we're doubling that in the next six months. Okay. You know, you could argue like you know compared to the number of cell phones we have, that's not that much for the ocean. This is massive. This is absolutely an incredible step forward. Every sensor that we deploy measures real time weather on the surface so waves like a complete you know distribution of wave energy across frequencies and directions uh, it measures the wind it measures surface currents it measures sea surface temperature and their platforms so basically we're expanding the sensors that go onto it in fact we're working with partner organizations customers 
uh, to add sensors that you know we may not identify as being valuable or like really important to measure but we we work with you know organizations around the world including scientists and academics uh, to make sure that basically this platform which is a distributed platform technically because there's all these you know distributed sensor nodes is going to develop into like the most powerful sensing capability that we have uh, for our oceans so a couple questions 500 sounds like a lot in one context when you think about the size of the oceans it sounds minuscule but i don't know what the kind of radius or kind of you know what what that does in terms of the data you can collect relative to the size of the oceans and whether that matters and then the other thing that occurs to me is um a few weeks ago we had on the podcast uh, this company gridware and they're making sensors for electricity poles all over california and you know one of the issues perhaps the issue is like making it robust making sure that it works all the time it's always on all of this stuff but that's not bobbing around in an ocean getting crashed upon by waves and who knows what else so i presume a lot of this has been a quite a big engineering challenge just to make something that's not going to completely break after you know a week on the open sea Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the, you know, the questions, like, why is this hard, right? I mean, basically, technically, what we're doing is ocean IoT, and IoT is not hard anymore. What makes it hard is, you know, we got to get this in the middle of the ocean. So deployment, we want to make sure that it doesn't break. Um, it needs to stay powered, and it needs to be able to communicate across the world, you know, where there are no cell phone towers. Uh, so those are a few challenges. But then the last one where it gets really interesting is that it needs to scale. Like it's a pretty big place. It's you know over 70% of the surface of the planet. And so to get decent coverage, we need to build things that are the cost of a cell phone um, yeah. to actually be able to deploy thousands of them and maintain thousands of them and get reliable information from them. So we've been doing this for a few years now. We started deploying about two years ago, you know, gradually building up, you know, gaining experience. We have millions of hours of real time ocean data from our network right now. So we've, we've got some learnings and we, we build a platform that is scalable and that will you know, resist basically the unpleasant environment that the ocean provides. Um, you know, salt water doesn't do well with electronics. Yeah. Um, you know, major <laughs> storms is actually what we're interested in. We want to measure the biggest wave events and the biggest you know, tropical cyclones because that's where the models are all wrong. And so these, they, have to, they have to be able to, to live through that. And yeah, I think we've, we've, we've gotten to a stage where that actually works. And so what do they look like? Are they basically just what I would think of as like a standard looking buoy? Yeah, they're basically a basketball sized buoy with solar panels on it. They have GPS on board, they have sensors on board, they have Iridium communication or satellite communication, I should say, because there's other networks that we use. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a small self-contained IoT device that can live through everything the ocean can throw at it. And you said, you mentioned something that was interesting. You said, you know, we talk about these big weather events. That's where we're wrong. That's where we don't kind of aren't fully understanding. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think it ties back to the other question you had, like around like, hey, how many senses do we need really, right? Like when does it become meaningful? Is 500 a big number or is it a small number? Yeah. It's actually a pretty big number. And and the way to think about this is that basically, yeah, you could argue like, you know, we have a pretty limited footprint in the ocean, but you know, these weather systems are hundreds of miles big. And mm. so basically our network, you know, for instance, in the Pacific, where we have about, you know, 300 sensors, because it's mostly, that's where we started. If a weather system moves through that network, it will always touch some of the sensors. 
which means that basically we'll get information on the actual state of the weather system. And we can take that information and insert that into forecast models to improve those models. So the way these forecast models work, for instance, for weather, is that they take information about what's happening on the ocean right now mm. um, and then propagate that forward in space and time to predict what happens, in, say, three days from now. So if you have more information about like what's wrong with your information about right now, like your weather system is in the wrong place or is at the wrong intensity, and you can correct for that because you have information that says like, hey, it's actually 80% of what we thought it was, or it's 120% of what we thought it was, then you can update that in the model and now make a better prediction about the future. And that that's all what we're doing. We're gathering more information, uh, you know, one, to understand the processes better, obviously, but second, mostly just to like, you know, improve our models by providing information about what's actually happening in the now state. And this is probably an obvious question, but why does that matter? Like who wants this data? How can we use this whether in a business context or a climate change context, or I imagine those are the same context in many uh, situations. You know, what problem are we solving here? What do we? What does this allow you to do that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise? Well, there's a couple of layers to that, I'd say. <laughs> um, I mean, the first one, just stepping back from like, you know, as a human being, we're living on a planet with, you know, three big things, you know, right in front of us, land, space, and ocean. From a climate perspective, uh, you know, the ocean is at least an equal partner to the atmosphere. So, understanding better what's happening in the ocean in terms of like changing temperatures, uh, storm intensities, understanding processes that are interplaying, like, you know, current systems that are changing. I, I think that is a objectively pretty important thing to start getting a handle on. You know, if we want to have long-term statistics, you could argue like, well, two years is not long-term statistic. You're right. But if we want to get long-term statistics, we're going to have to start measuring at some point, right? Yeah. So let's do it. The other part is, you know, if you think about any major industry in the ocean, it's going to be affected by uncertainties associated with weather. And right now, the uncertainties with weather over the ocean are at a different order of magnitude than they are over land. And that's simply because over land, mm. we have weather stations on rooftops. In the ocean, we have none of that. Right. So we don't often, we don't even know how bad our forecasts are. Now, imagine that you are a shipping company and you want to drive a vessel across the ocean. Right. Where you lose all your money is on the ocean. You make your money by putting cargo in your vessel and you're making money by getting it out of the vessel. That time on the ocean spent is where you burn all the fuel that you need to get across. And basically, that means you lose the time, the vessel is not available something else, and you're burning fuel to reduce the time that the vessel is not available. So reducing the uncertainty is going to help industries be more efficient, save fuel, reduce emissions and you know improve their bottom line. So it's a win-win for everyone. Like we can help you know meet new regulations that are coming down the pipeline to reduce emissions uh, from these types of industries. We can help these companies be more efficient and as a result basically we we end up in a in a better place for for everything. And this goes, you know, not just for shipping. There are obviously other industries including emerging industries like maritime renewable energy who are going to be in you know fundamentally depending on understanding that environment better and being able to operationally forecast what's going to happen, say, for the next 24 hours, the next five days, the next 10 days, et cetera. And is there a, a sense you can give you, you mentioned like the kind of ground-based weather stations. How many are there like on land relative to what we have in the ocean? Because I feel like there, there's probably quite a big difference there <laughs> that might illustrate what, you know, what we're looking at. I, I don't know the ratio. I would guess that is a terrifyingly large ratio because in the open ocean, there aren't any other weather stations right now, pretty much, 
than what we've deployed. Got you. And so if you imagine like how many weather stations that would be just in the United States, that number is, is staggering. Right, right. Got you. And why did you decide to do this? Like you personally, like what were you doing before? Like what's your background? Was it in business, academia? Like how did you end up starting a company that is taking on a, something that's quite difficult? Yeah. So I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, my background is in physical oceanography. So I was uh, in academia before this, you know, studying the interaction between atmosphere and ocean, particularly looking at wave propagation dynamics, uh, you know, how wind is generating waves, mixing, and how basically the atmosphere and ocean play together. And I was mostly on the theoretical side, like basically building theoretical models about how to improve these forecast models, like building a new you know, way of like, the friction that the, the wind exerts on the ocean, et cetera. And that's a lot of work. And, you know, as sort of like an you know, early academic, I was like super excited about, you know, the mathematics behind it and just, you know, fully sucked into like, this is just a really cool problem to solve. And at some point, I guess that this comes with age, you start to wonder like, well, <laughs> why am I spending all this time on this? Like, what's the impact of it? And I came to realize that improving those models is really not where we can really make a difference. Those models are not perfect. I mean, they are models and they, they won't ever be perfect. And they're certainly not perfect today, but they're much better than the data that we can provide to drive them. And as a result, I mean, making those incremental improvements to the models just didn't have much of an impact because there was so much uncertainty about the now state and like what is actually going on today. And so what I wanted to do at that point was like, okay, well, let's change you know, that part of the problem. Let's make sure that we can actually create data at scale in the right. ocean. And we're taking lessons from space. Like we've been incredibly successful in space by getting away from these older paradigms where we have large, exquisite satellites that only governments can afford and have commercial companies step in and actually like, hey, you know what? If we make this simpler uh, and more scalable, we can have hundreds or thousands of these things out there. And now we get way more data and we're doing better. This is the same model, but applied to the ocean. Right. Got you. So when did you start so far? 2016. We, uh, we started out basically, you know, with some support from ARPA-E in the United States to work on a platform like the, what we use now for the open ocean to actually provide information for marine renewable energy, like really, you know, being able to measure the wave climate longer term at extremely low cost. Because this is, again, for marine renewable energy, if we want to have sensors everywhere to you know, characterize the ocean climate, this that needs to scale. So that was basically for us a way to start building this platform because the hard part of what we do is that it goes across like we have to build the hardware then we have to basically maintain a very large network you know to get the data and then on top of that we build intelligence like we take this data you know drive it into models to basically improve the forecasts and then you know for instance in the case of maritime shipping we develop the tool basically a google maps of the sea to basically provide better route forecasts for these vessels to save them fuel and emissions so the difficulty, I think, from what we've done is that it is like, you know, across this whole stack of technology, like we had to build the hardware, which was the starting point we started with in 2016. Then we started deploying our network so that we collect, you know, large amounts of data and actually start making a difference uh, in our ability, you know, at large, like not just us, but, you know, for oceanography, for humanity, if you will, mm. uh, collect data in the ocean at scale. And then finally, you know, showing the way into like, how can we use this data, which we've never had before, in models, like, you know, the ocean has been a data sparse system for as long as we can remember. And so all our models are optimized for working in that environment. Suddenly we throw all this data at it, like suddenly it becomes almost a big data environment. So how do we deal with that? 
like how do we use modern data-driven technologies like you know machine learning to actually improve the way that models can integrate that data into their systems. Was it difficult to raise money for this idea? Because part of it, when you say it out loud, you're like, well, of course, like this is make, totally makes sense, um, especially with the space analogy, which we've covered a lot on this pod and in the paper. But you're coming from academia. Was this your first company? Yeah, it, it's, it's my first serious company, I think. I mean, I had some <laughs> some companies in, in college, but yet after that, I got so enthused by science that, that that really pulled me in a different direction. And I guess I feel sort of like I'm back doing this. So yes, short answer is yes. Yeah. So how was the fundraising process, you know, creating a company and convincing investors to be like, yeah, we're going to give you, I don't know how much you've raised money to try this. Yeah, I, I think this probably goes for most companies that have like a, a very strong impact driven mission that you've got to find the right people. I think we've been successful in partnering up with incredible investors who've been very, very helpful and, and supportive of what we're trying to do and understand what the mission and the scope of what we do is and, and are really excited about it. I mean, there is a, a double upside, right? If we win, it's not just a company that wins. I think everybody wins. Several major industries will win, but I think all, all of us will get better insights into our environment and our ability to make predictions there. Obviously, there is also a business case for this. You know, we are right now the only ones that collect ocean data at scale, which means that we have unique insights in this you know, very large surface area on our planet. And we can serve several different industries there almost immediately. Um, so I think that combination is what excites the team, uh, it excites me. But I think it's also that what really excited our investors. And, and again, I think it's really around finding a great match and finding the right people to understand like what we're trying to do and what the impact is and, and how big this can be. Get more of The Times and The Sunday Times for less than a pound a day. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to start your free trial. That's once again, thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley so that they know I sent you. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code Program. How much money have you raised? We had a Series A in 2019, um, and we raised $7 million at that point. Right. And why, why are you here in San Francisco? You're from the Netherlands, is that right? Yeah, good question. <laughs> the weather is a lot better here. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, what got me here is that I did a postdoc at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. Mm. We really liked it there. It's a great, I mean, California, coming from the Netherlands, the weather is a lot nicer. So that was definitely a pull factor. But yeah, my wife found a job here and she really liked it. And it was like, okay, cool. We're, we're going to stick around a little longer. I got an academic position here. And before you know it, you're here quite a long time. It, it, time really went fast after like, you know, the initial saddling in, in San Francisco and all the excitement around starting a company. So yeah, it's not something that I, I think, you know, 15 years ago would have said like, I'm going to go to San Francisco and I'm going to do all this. This was sort of like more an organic development of, you know, things falling in place. There is obviously a lot of opportunity here. It's not clear to me whether or not something like this, which is like you pointed out, it's a, it's a complicated business. It's a, it's a complicated thing to like really wrap your head around like, wait, what is, what is the potential of what we do? Um, I don't know if that would have been possible in a different place. I mean, it's hard to say, but it's possible here. And that, that's, that's pretty amazing. Right. And so who are your customers? Is it shipping companies? Is it, I don't know, hedge funds trying to get, you know, understand what's happening in oceans as a way to kind of make a bet on whatever a shipping company or whatever it may be who's who's kind of who's buying this data yeah there's a range of customers obviously it's like because of the the full stack nature of, of what we do we have the hardware and we have hardware customers the typical hardware customer is a scientist uh, or somebody who's interested enough in the data to actually wanting to have a data you know a piece of hardware and deploy it in the ocean. Oh, so you can like sell a buoy to a scientist, for example. Yes, and kind we of, do. Right, right. And that was sort of like, hey, we started building this hardware because we wanted to build this network. And then folks said like, hey, this is really cool. Can we have one? And we're like, sure, yeah. Right. Okay, cool. We'll sell the hardware. And then obviously we have access to the data. So this is basically another way of building a very large distributed network with distributed ownership of the hardware. So folks can own the hardware, can deploy it wherever they want. I see fully owned by them. We don't have any links to it anymore, but we get information from it, which you know can be really valuable. And of course, after that, when we started deploying our network, we had raw data, like we had lots of data. And we, our vision was like, look, we can translate that into insights. Like we can help industries make better decisions and we can help you know science as well. But then there were customers that are interested in the data itself. And you can think of that as you know folks that have operational forecast needs, you know, people that run their own forecast models and say, like, look, we don't really need your models. We want the data because it will improve our model as well. So that became a customer drive as well. The last part of it is the the insights. Like, you know, we are focusing currently on on maritime shipping. It's a, an industry that I think right now is in a position where it needs a lot of help. There is lots of changes in terms of, like, regulations around the fuel that they can use, the emissions that they have. And so right now, I think a big big value of what we can deliver immediately is help shipping companies be more efficient by finding more economic routes across the ocean. And that's that's what we're focusing on right now in, on the analytics layer. 
And when you say when you say economic routes, and I have no idea about shipping, but is it kind of like okay, there's this massive weather system that's 500 miles in front of you. Maybe you should take a hard right turn and avoid that because you'll be able to save a bunch of fuel rather than having to like churn through heavy seas, for example. Absolutely. Think about it as as a Google Maps in the middle of the ocean. Um, or ways be like, oh, there's something in the road. Exactly. It's absolutely like that. And so the additional complication is that we're not just optimizing for time as we would for like, you know, a routing in your car. We're optimizing for a business outcome. And so there is a cost associated with time. There's a cost associated with reducing the time, which typically means burn more fuel. And there's a cost associated with emissions. And so what we do is basically dynamically optimize continuously for what is the best decision that you can make now to get the best outcome, given what you want to optimize for. So that's how that would work. Gotcha. And so what it looks like is literally a map on the bridge where basically a new route shows up and says like, hey, Captain, we found a new option. This is all the contextual information we have, weather-wise, you know, the economy of it. Do you want to take it? And if, if yes, then cool. That now becomes the active route, and we keep looking for better alternatives. And you can optimize for time versus cost versus a whole bunch of different factors. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. It's completely user-set. I mean, basically, we're just optimizing a problem. It's a simple, well, not maybe simple, but it's an optimization problem. Right. Um, and basically, you can just set like, look, I want to associate costs with this. I want to associate costs with that. Time costs me this much per day. Emissions, I'm going to have to pay taxes on that. That costs me this much a day uh, or per metric ton that I burn. And fuel costs, you know, this much. And, you know, find me the best solution given all the weather uncertainty. And that's the big problem here. You can do this. You could probably have done this five years ago, but the uncertainty in the weather is really large. And so basically, although you find an optimum, you don't really know what an optimum is because there's all this uncertainty associated with the thing you're optimizing against, which is the weather. And so by adding all these sensors and providing real-time updates to our weather forecast, we can reduce that uncertainty and, and get a better result. I see. And so you're at 500 sensors right now. You plan to double that in the next six months. What about in like five years? What's the vision? How many will you have out there? And I presume just the more sensors you have, it's an increased granularity. It's kind of you're be able to provide better data, a better route, so to speak. Yeah, it, it will. I mean, there's going to be, you know, in the next five years, say, there's going to be evolution both in the nature of the sensors, like what are we measuring? And it's going to get more advanced and the number of sensor nodes. And so we'll aim for around 5,000 sensors in five years continuously. That is a density that we think is going to be probably almost like, you know, you can go beyond that, but basically your returns are going to be less. I see. So, you know, point of diminishing returns. And so you can keep adding more, but maintaining a 5,000 sensor network globally across all our ocean basins is going to make a massive step function increase in our ability to make forecasts on, on ocean weather. Right. And presumably you're focusing on right now places that are around shipping lanes. No, we're everywhere. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a global network. Right. We Look, shipping is, is clearly a focus for us right now. It's a major mm. industry that we can help. But we are committed to basically go beyond that as well. Like we collect data everywhere. We're in the Southern Ocean. Nobody wants to drive a vessel through the Southern Ocean. But the Southern Ocean is an important ocean right. from an environmental perspective. Lots of questions, very little information. We are collecting data. Also, if you think about weather along a, a route for a vessel, 
that weather is generated somewhere else. So we need to basically have full coverage of the oceans to make sure that we actually predict as weather systems propagate you know, remotely from those routes and radiate big waves in that direction. So we are really covering the oceans as a whole and not focusing specifically on routes. Now, practically though, we deploy a lot with what we call vessels of opportunity. So basically research vessels, military vessels, commercial vessels, recreational vessels. And so we're a little bit dependent on where they are. We now also use airplanes for deployments, and that makes it a little easier to get into places that are hard, like, for instance, the Southern Ocean. You just parachute them out? Parachute them out or no parachute at all. Just let them go. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it feels like, you know, again, especially if you're getting to these more remote areas, deployment feels like a pretty big challenge. It is, but it's it's really, I think... The good thing, I mean, you know, in some ways it's harder maybe than space. In some ways it's easier. You don't need a massive rocket. But what you do need is a massive network of people. Yeah. Basically, there's lots of vessels in the ocean. There's really no need to burn, you know, more fuel to get, you know, small sensors out in the ocean. So as long as they're small enough and easy to deploy, and these are super easy. They're solar powered. You just throw them in the water and they start collecting data and talking to our backend. So you can ask you know, an organization, a vessel, like, hey, can you take these buoys and drop them roughly at these locations? Yeah, drop it at this coordinates or whatever and keep moving. Yeah, and you can go as fast as you like, and that can be from a very big vessel, like, you know, 150 feet above the water level going at 20 knots, or from a C-130, for that matter. You could just, like, toss it overboard, buoy overboard, yeah. and just keep going. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we have we have lots of videos of people doing that. It's, it's really... You know, it's an exciting experience for everyone. Right. And where, in terms of the actual, the business case, you talked about how this is a distributed network. Is the idea that say I'm whatever, a private company, a shipping company, I was like, I'd like 10 buoys along the, roughly in this zone where I do a lot of my traveling. Is the idea that they can buy it, but the deal is you get access to their data as part of your larger kind of intelligence gathering? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, we don't put it on the website. We don't disclose like where instruments are, but we can use them statistically. Like we can right. insert the data into models if we want to and, and basically use it in aggregate like that. Yes. I see. So what is happening on the oceans? Should we be freaking out right now? Sometimes. I mean, basically, there is <laughs> um, the number of like very large storms we see and the, you know, the, the very large waves we see, see coming by is something that Maybe we weren't always aware of that. Basically, that's that normal and, and that mm. often. And what's a very large wave? Well, very large wave, like, you know. Um, How large is large? 15 meter wave, 50 meter wave. So basically, you know, th those are several houses tall, really, really big waves. And, and those are not exceptional. We know that they're happening. But, you know, the, the, the frequency with which they happen, maybe not purely surprising, but it is sort of like confronting, like, whoa, this is not, this is not like an exceptional thing. It happens regularly. But again, like I said, like to really look at like long-term changes, we need to start making these measurements. And that's mm -hmm. really the, the main motivation. Like we got to start, we got to set a baseline. And if nothing else, that's what this is. Like this will provide a baseline that in years from now, we can look back and look at all this data, which we are actively sharing with the, the research community around the world right now to make sure that it's captured, that it's used, you know, for also progressing our understanding of these, these large masses of water around us. Was there a reason this hasn't been done before? Because as you say, it's covers 70% of the planet. It's hugely important for global commerce. There's not a shortage of reasons to have a bunch of this sensing in the ocean. 
But it, was there an enabling technology that suddenly got cheap or, you know, what has made this, what you do possible? Yeah, I think there's a number of things. This is actually across the span of, of technology improvements. One is, you know, IoT, obviously. So basically having low-cost IoT hardware and, and connectivity capability was key. Manufacturing, using materials that can resist the environment and making that low-cost enough. Solar power, uh, so the ability to both harvest and, and store energy, so battery technology was critical, something that you know, a few years ago would have been a lot harder. Really important is communication. So we've seen several new companies launched recently that actually provide options for low-cost remote communication, which is absolutely critical. That removes one of the major barriers to doing this. Cloud computing, the ability to take the data, large amounts of data, and insert them into forecast models and, and run them. Like, we're a small team. We're yeah. 45 people, and we're making forecasts that are better than NOAA's. That is only possible because you know the ability for us to insert all of this data and run global forecast models operationally, like every six hours, we're running alongside NOAA and basically improving our forecast by inserting all our data. And so the combination of all these things, you know, that wasn't there a few years ago. And so I think we're at the cusp of something that we can actually start building out to like this permanent network, permanent sort of like ocean intelligence that we've not had to date. And will the sensors always be on the surface? I mean, obviously, solar power is a kind of the key to this, it would seem. But I don't know if there is any plan or any really utility in having things kind of actually in the water. There is, and, and there will be. Um, so, yeah, part of the sensor will always be on the surface. The part that communicates, the part that has GPS, and the part that collects power. But yes, there is going to be a subsurface component to it, and it already is. Like, for instance, we measure sea surface temperature. Hmm. We're building strings of sensors like to measure basically the stratification in the upper ocean. And that's important, for instance, for extreme storms. Like often these storms are fed by the heat that's in the ocean. And so get right. a better sense of like what that is in real time can help predict and reduce the uncertainty, say like in these forecast cones of hurricanes, we have more information, we can make better estimates and we can reduce those cones of uncertainty and give people more of a heads up before something like that makes landfall. Did you ever think this wasn't going to work? You know, this because we have a lot of startup founders on here and there's always harrowing tales. I mean, often ask, you know, what was your worst day of work? Whoa, that's a good one. I don't know. I think as a, you know, as a founder, this is a pretty big generalization, I would say, but I think the, the nature of the job is sort of characterized by pretty big ups and downs. Yeah, it'd be hard to to point one sort of like, oh, that was the biggest down. I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes a not so big down is perceived as really bad because you you just don't have your day. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, like not today, please. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but I think that goes across and it's still the case. I mean, basically, you're, you're trying to figure out you, you make sure you're on an upward trend. But around that trend, you're cyclic, like you, you go up and down. Sometimes, it's, yeah. you know, everything works and, you know, sky's the limit and other days everything seems to be a problem and that that's just the nature of the game i think and i i think just embracing that and accepting that and you know building on it in terms of like those bad days are actually where you build resilience in yourself and your team and that's where you basically build toward success that makes it a little, little bit easier maybe to to just accept that that's you know that that's going to happen and it's going to happen again is there one 
day that you remember that was like the best day or like a big milestone? I don't know if like the first time one of these things went in the water. Yeah, for sure. I mean, th- that was the first time when we had a vessel that we said like, hey, can you take some buoys? And they went across the Pacific and we start seeing them coming online. Like the first sensors coming online, that was something that, you know, I would share with all my friends and say like, hey, this is it, you know, we're live. And that was only like, you know, five sensors. <laughs> and so that that idea of like, you know, we're moving. This is actually going right. to happen. We're getting these things in the water. We're getting live data. They continue to work. We technically didn't fully know whether they could just throw them overboard. I mean, I'm very confident about that now because we've done it a lot of times. But the first few were like, well, can we do, can we go 20 knots and drop them from 100 feet? I don't really know, but we're about to find out. And, um, that's that's what we did. And and so the first few coming live was was massive. The first time that we actually drew this data into a forecast model that showed that we were better than anything else out there, that was incredible. The first time that we optimized a route with a live vessel going across the ocean was another one of those super highs. Like basically, these are the, the things that we've worked towards as a company, and you know that you know, in a successful scenario, it's going to happen. But actually doing it and seeing something like that come live or, you know, come together, particularly because everything that you do like this is is a team of people working together across disciplines. Like in our company, we have scientists, software, hardware engineers, because all those things matter. And so anything we do is really a collaboration between these widely different disciplines, which is incredibly energizing to see you know, what you can get if, if that actually, that system works, like the interaction between people that speak very different languages. You mentioned like the first time you optimized the route, but I was wondering if you could kind of give an example of what that actually means. So like, if you have an example that comes to mind, like what does it mean to be like, you know, actually you should avoid this, go here, et cetera. And therefore they save, I don't know, a million dollars in fuel or $10 million in fuel or avoid a massive storm. Like what does that actually mean to a company? Yeah, it means a combination of things. Like imagine you're driving a very large vessel. I mean, the responsibility is incredible, right? You have a crew, mm-hmm. you have a you know a $50 million asset and probably $50 million in, in cargo and everybody's watching you. And so basically there is safety. Um, like I'm avoiding a massive storm. I'm not gonna have everybody not sleep because the waves are so big and I'm not gonna sweat because my, my vessel is making weird noises. There is like, hey, I'm actually saving fuel and emissions, which is great for the company and great for everything else. I'm actually using things to my benefit rather than the other way around. For example, I'm getting into this massive current system. So we're actually getting all this free energy from a massive ocean current. So that's what it looks like. Basically, you know, a couple of days ahead of time, we say like, hey, Captain, you're on this route right now. You're going to hit a pretty big storm. There is an opportunity to go slightly north. You ride, say, the Agulas current. And basically, you save X amount of fuel, you save X amount of time, and your wave heights are going to be lower overall. So you're not going to be at risk of getting into a weird rolling motion, which could lead to cargo loss, could lead to damage to the vessel, or even injury. Um, so there is no downside to it. Like we're, we're trying to find like you know upside only. And sometimes, very exceptionally, you might have to make a consideration between like, hey, these are pretty big waves, but it's more economical versus like not. And sometimes, you know, that's the choice. And we just deliver the information to the captain and say like, hey, this is the best information we have. Let us know what you want to do. Fascinating. Um, I think it's a really interesting idea. Hey, you're welcome. It was a, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks. And uh, we'll, we'll check back when you guys are at, up at 5,000. And hopefully <laughs> the world isn't just getting scarier and scarier from a climate change perspective. Sounds good. Let's do it. 
And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Tim for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening and for your ratings and reviews and the ACAST tips they get here and there and for just being a great audience and followers and people who are tuning into the pod. I really do, do deeply appreciate it. I don't think I'll be writing about this week, but I'm writing about a couple other techie things that are quite fun. So do check out the paper at thetimes.co.uk for that. And you can also find me on Twitter. Although I have to say, I'm still kind of in vacation mode. So I'm not a big Twitter user, but I'm even less so at the moment. I'm still kind of, you know, on island time. But anyway, I mean, you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. Or you can email me at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for this week. I will be back next week. Have a fabulous weekend. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. 